2014, uh, Larry Hester, a man who was blind, not by birth, but by um, a disease in his eyes over a period of time, um, became blind, completely blind. And he lived for 30 years as a blind man, unable to see really much of anything. But through the miracle, if you will, of, of science, uh, doctors in 2014 got together and with seven other um, people um, gave Larry eyes, gave him eyes that he could see with. Uh, he got bionic eyes. And through this uh, series of tests and, and uh, through the different things that they were doing uh, to him, he was able to regain some, but not all, of his sight. He was excited, no less, that he could see again, but he couldn't see clearly. As we think about science and all the great things that, that uh, the advancements in technology and science, and, and we can really say that they are blessings from God, that they are uh, miracles that God has worked in our day and age. But as we think about uh, science in this particular area, they weren't able to give him complete sight. He was still blinded. This week I talked to our sister, uh, Mary Ann, and I asked her, Sister, help me understand what it means and what it looks like to live life as a blind person. I don't want to assume anything. I don't want to assume. And it really just served to help me understand um, the kind of burden if you will, the kind of uh, cross that God has given our sister to bear. Um, and as I thought through our passage this morning, thinking through what it would have meant to that man that wasn't born blind, but who through life in some way we don't know, became blind and was dependent on other people, but then to receive sight again, what would that have been like? What would it have been like to... To, to be burdened your life and dependent. And to have your life completely transformed by a touch from Jesus. Over the last few weeks, we've been seeing various ways in which Jesus has touched people. Whether it's a deaf man's ears or a blind man's eyes or a leper or a little child who died. Jesus' touch radically transforms people's lives. We've seen that the disciples have been walking with Jesus. As Jesus has been traveling around the countryside outside of Galilee and in the regions in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile regions, the disciples have been along for the travel. Uh, they've been kind of in the background, if you will, just, just listening and watching and, and looking at how Jesus does ministry. And ever so slowly, Jesus has invited them in to the narrative of His ministry. Slowly, the disciples have been introduced to various parables and Jesus has taken them to the side and told them what those parables meant. Or Jesus has been out on the boat with his disciples when the storms arose and they become frightened and afraid and, and, and want to uh, scream for help. Jesus has, has calmed the storms and brought to them peace. 
We've seen Jesus feeding large groups of people, 5,000 and then 4,000. The disciples have been there for it all. And what we've seen is that throughout this, the disciples' faith has wavered. They don't get it. They don't understand who Jesus is. When Jesus calms the waves, they stand and say, Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey Him. When they're in the boat with Jesus last week, we saw they're, they're complaining about not having enough food. Jesus says, Guys, do you not remember how I took a little and fed 5,000? Do you not remember when I took a little and fed 4,000? Surely I can supply your needs here in this boat. Will you not trust me? Will you not put your faith in me? So we've seen Jesus slowly introducing us more and more to these fumbling, bumbling disciples. They don't quite get who he is. But things are about to change. In Mark's gospel, if we thought about it like a play... Act 1, Act 2. Last week we kind of concluded Act 1. And this week we're kind of beginning Act 2, if you will. And Act 2 begins with some bookends. Uh, Mark is, loves to bookend things. What I mean is he likes to start and end with similar stories. A, a mental reminder of what's in between. Like a sandwich, right? I mean, who gets excited about the bread? It's what's inside that we love in the middle, right? I mean, bread is good. I love bread. But, man, it's what's in the middle that matters, right? Well, similar, uh, Mark does that. Remember, this was originally given orally, not really written down. And so he had these little mental notes to people, little things that would stick out. A healing of a blind man? Surely that would stick out in your mind. That would stick out. I mean, no one can heal. Even today... 2,000 years later, we still can't, with all of our technology, completely, completely give sight to those that are blind. Clearly, this miracle would have stuck, stuck out in the minds of people. If you will, open to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8 this morning, in verse 22. We're going to consider the story of a blind man who's healed in a quite unusual way. Perhaps this story is familiar to you only because it seems as if Jesus doesn't have the ability to heal. It seems as if Jesus doesn't have the power to heal blind men and women. Mark chapter 22. What we see here is that Mark begins this section, Act 2 if you will, with a healing and then concludes it in chapter 10 with a healing of blind Bartimaeus. The first, an unknown man who is blind. And then the concluding time is, is the healing of Bartimaeus, a blind man uh, who is clearly a Jew. Perhaps this blind man in our text this morning is a Gentile, although we don't quite know. We're just assuming um, because of the region that he's in is a more Gentile region. So what are we to make of this passage? Let's first read it together. Follow along with me. Mark chapter 8. That's page 844 in the few Bibles. Mark chapter 8 and verse 22. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. 
And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, sent him to his home, saying, Do not enter the village. What is the point of this story? Why does Mark tell us this? Mark's the only one that includes this narrative in, uh, among all of the gospel writers. Mark's the only one who tells the story. Why? What's the point of this story? What does this reveal about Jesus? It, it seems as if Jesus isn't as grand and powerful as we once thought he was. Jesus seems to be somewhat wavering in his power. Maybe, maybe he's running low on, on his divine power and it takes twice to heal. Maybe this man's blindness is so stubborn it takes two times. So what are we to make of this two-stage healing? What do we make of this healing? Well, let's first look at what happened. Let's just look at the narrative passage. Just consider the events. It's a short little narrative, so I think... You know, just walking through it might just be ha- perhaps helpful. Is it the point just to display Jesus' power? Is it to display the, 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 the faith of this man's friends? Well, what are we to make of this story? Well, first, notice the friends. Notice his friends. In verse 22, we're told that Jesus arrived with his 12 disciples into Bethsaida. And some people, we don't know who these people are, just some people. This, 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 group, they, this group brought this blind man to Jesus. We don't know. Perhaps they've heard about Jesus. Perhaps they have maybe been touched by Jesus already in the sense that um, when Jesus was in the region before, maybe they went out and they heard him preach. Maybe they, maybe they are beginning to have faith. We, we don't really know. These men just could perhaps have just saw Jesus as some sort of magician, some sort of miracle worker. Didn't really, didn't really believe that he was God. They just wanted to take to him uh, their friend. But we notice here these men and their faith. They, they see that these men or people, we don't really know if men and women we could perhaps assume, brought to him a blind man. A blind man. Now we know by the story and Marianne's just tremendous help to me this week. One of the things Marianne pointed out to me was that when you're born blind and you begin to see again, your mind has never been able to see, right? So your mind has to be trained. Uh, One of the things that happens to us is when we're infants and we see, we learn how to see. I remember when my children were born, the doctors would say that they, they, they don't see right now really clearly, but over time they learn how to see. Their eyes get, and they begin to see, and they can see you, and it, it develops over time. Well, for, for this man, we know that this man wasn't born blind because he recognizes trees. He knows what a tree is, okay? Uh, he sees these people walking like trees. Now, the man wouldn't have known what a tree was if he had not already known what a tree was. Does that make sense? So, so clearly this man was not born blind, but that doesn't make the miracle any less significant. It just helps us understand a little bit about who this man is. 
But if we look at the narrative, what we notice is something very similar to this passage and to the healing of the deaf man. Turn back with me to uh, Mark chapter 7 in verse 32. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 32, um, we considered a passage here where Jesus heals a deaf man. And notice the similarities. A man that can't speak. He, he, had a, uh, he, he was deaf and he had a speech impediment, clearly because he couldn't hear. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they noticed the similarity and they begged him to lay his hands on him. Do you see the similarities here? It's very, very similar. And then notice, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, just like he does the man here, just like he does the blind man. He takes the blind man out of the, out of the village to a remote area. And taking him out of the crowd privately, verse 33, he put his ears into his fingers after spitting, touched his tongue. Notice again, there's the use of spitting, which is weird. Well, Jesus, what are you doing? Um, right? Why are you spitting, Jesus? Don't spit. Didn't you learn that? Jesus, come on. Right? So we wonder, what is going on here? What is the significance of the similarities between these two narratives? That's a great question. What is this pointing to? How is, how is Mark using these stories to help teach us? We'll come back to that in a moment. We note the similarities. Secondly, notice that it took two times. I've already said that several times. It was a, a two-stage healing. Nowhere in the Gospels does this happen. Outside of the disciples' failure to heal, and Jesus needing to come in and heal and say, you know, only this kind of demon can be driven away uh, by prayer and fasting, do we see a, a similarity here? So it's very unique that Jesus is having to do this twice. So we're left to wonder, what is going on here? What is Jesus doing? Why did it take him twice to heal this man? Does Jesus not have power? Notice also the usage of the word seeing. Throughout this short little passage, I mean, it's only a handful of verses, we see here he uses the word for sight nine different times in this short little passage. Uh, clearly, Peter, who is remembering this event, is emphasizing this man was blind, but now he sees. In the Greek, it's, it's eight different verbs, eight different distinct verbs used for sight. Clearly, the emphasis in this passage is, can you see? Can you see? Notice what he says in verse 28. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes and opened his eyes eyes he opened his eyes his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly just in that short verse you see the emphasis here is on the man's sight friends blindness is a devastating effect of the fall we don't just look at blindness as like a pro like it's just a casual problem no more than we look at cancer as a casual thing these are devastating effects of the fall so what does this reveal about Jesus? It is the point of the story to reveal Jesus, or is it something else? First, look at what it reveals about Jesus. Jesus is not an ordinary man. Clearly, through this narrative, we see Jesus is not ordinary. Because I can guarantee you, if you go about doing these kind of things, it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, going around spitting on people is not probably the thing you need to be doing. 
right? So that's not going to work, right? We see Jesus here is demonstrating something quite extraordinary. Jesus is not an ordinary man, which is what Mark is writing about. (coughs) Excuse me. But more to the point is understanding a little bit of the Old Testament backdrop to what Jesus is doing. You have your Bibles? Turn with me to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. And I think if you have your Bibles and you know where Isaiah 35 is, I would turn there. Just helpful. It's page 3, excuse me, 595. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, Isaiah 35. In, in Isaiah 35, Isaiah is prophesying. What that means is that Isaiah is foretelling the future. He is, he's telling what is going to happen, what God is going to do in the future with his people. And this isn't just exclusively the Israelite people. This is God's people. What is he going to do to God's people? Verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. So the things that were once deserted shall have life again. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Excuse me. It shall blossom abundantly and, re- and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So what do we see here? A picture of restoration. God is going to take what is desolate and make it flourish again. God is going to take what is fruitless and, be- and it's going to bear fruit. Something that's dead is going to be made alive. Notice then what he says. Strengthen the weak, weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So notice here, who is coming to save? It's God. God is coming to save. God is coming to save. He's he's fed up with his prophets. He's fed up with his priests. He's going to come and do it himself. He's done with it. I'm coming. I will accomplish this. I will do it. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the deserts. Now assumed in that is that God is going to be the doing the work of healing. The blind will see, and the deaf will hear. Now, this passage is referring, if you will, to a future future. It's even future to us. So I do not believe that Isaiah 35 was completely fulfilled in Jesus. It was only partially fulfilled. Jesus ushered in Isaiah 35. When we see Jesus healing blind men and healing deaf men, Isaiah 35 is in our ears. It's ringing Jesus is God. If God is the one who will come and save and heal blind and deaf, and Jesus comes and saves and heals blind and deaf, then Jesus must be more than just an ordinary man. He must be God. We see Jesus fulfilling this passage in His coming. Jesus is ushering in a new exodus. Where freedom is given. Where freedom from the slavery of sin. Through the cross. Our victory is won through the resurrection. We no longer fear 
We no longer fear death. We're not afraid of death. But we know that death is not the finality of our lives. We shall all live through Christ. And so we see that Christ is ushering in the promise of the new covenant. The new creation has come in Christ. Jesus is giving, if you will, a picture, a Polaroid of what he's going to do in the future. Jesus is showing us what we have to look forward to in the promises of God. That all the blind shall see, not just this blind man. All the deaf shall hear, not just that one deaf man in chapter 7. God is ushering in through Christ a new creation. And restoration has come in Him. We see also the exclusivity of Christ. Christ is the only one who can usher this in. We don't look for another to come. The promises of God have been completed in Christ. So in a sense, Isaiah 35 has been fulfilled. but not yet fulfilled. We hold it in tension. It's already Jesus has come, but but not yet. We long for His second coming because when He comes again, He shall restore all things. And so our hope is in that. And we see clearly this passage leads us to worshiping Christ. If Christ is God, then He's worthy of worship. If Jesus is the God-man, then He's worthy of our praise and adoration. We should worship Him today, for He has power to restore sight. But I don't think that's the only point of this passage. If you think about who is there and what Jesus is doing, I think you might see a little bit clearly what He's trying to accomplish. Back up to verse 21. Remember, Jesus has taken this man by himself, assumed with his disciples, into a desolate area or outside the village to do this healing. And remember that Jesus had just had a little conversation with his disciples about their faith or the lack thereof. And he asked them a question, verse 21. Do you not yet understand? Do you not get it? Do you not understand what is happening here? Do you not understand who I am? But notice the similarity between that question and the question he asked the man in verse 23. Do you see anything? They're very similar questions. Do you understand? Do you see? What Jesus is asking his disciples is, do you see who I am? This miracle, if you will, is a parable of the disciples' faith. The disciples' faith is like the blind man. They can't see who Jesus is. It hasn't dawned on them yet. Their eyes are glazed over. They don't see clearly. And so what we see in this two-stage miracle is, if you will, the spiritual blindness of his disciples. They kind of get it a little bit. I mean, they start asking the right question, at least. Who is this guy? Clearly he's something 
not ordinary. Who is this, who is this man who, who the waves and the winds obey? Who, who is this man? Who is he? So they're asking the questions. But you're not grasping the reality of who Jesus is. And this is helpful as we think about their faith. Because next week we're going to see Peter making this grand confession about who Jesus is. Jesus is going to ask him, who do people say that I am? Who are people saying that I'm at? What's the word on the street about me? Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then, Jesus gets mad at Jesus because Jesus tells Peter the kind of Christ he will be. A suffering one. A suffering Savior. And so, when you understand this passage to mean a little bit more than just revealing who Jesus is, but rather a parable of the faith of his disciples, that it's slow. They don't, need, they don't quite get it yet. They're, they're progressing, if you will, in their faith. Like a child progresses in their sight. Slow. You don't see clearly when they're first born. It's a slow process. Or, or, or even how we change. We look back at old photos and, wow, I've changed, right? We were shocked by those things, right? We, we change unnoticed. Oftentimes we, we don't even recognize when our hair goes gray or, you know, we put on, we don't, we don't notice it. We, it is just a slow thing. And faith is like that. Faith is slow. Oftentimes, because of the world we live in, we want immediate results. I hear this most by new Christians. Um, they often, uh, you know, look to elder, mature Christians. Like, I want to be like that. I want to be like that now. And I kind of reel them back. It takes time, patience, patience. You know, slow down. Um, it comes in time. You change in time. Well, brothers and sisters, that's the same for us today. Our faith changes over time. I just want to encourage you not to look at your life in snapshots, but look at the whole. Don't just look at right now, like narrowly, this is who I am now, or this is what I was. But look at your life as a whole. How has God been working in your life over a period of maybe five years, or ten years, or twenty years, or thirty years? How, how you know, we, we often, you know, look at the Christian life as, a, as an upward, direct, direct, straight shot to holiness. Friends, it is not that way. And the disciples are a reminder of that. We see them falling. But one thing we see is they are always getting up. They're always getting back on their feet and going towards Christ. But notice who is there and helping them. Jesus. Jesus is caring for their souls. Jesus is showing them slowly who he is. He doesn't go out to the fire hydrant and just hose them down. He trickles it slowly but surely, slowly turning it up a little bit more and a little bit more. And this is helpful to understand because when we get into chapters 9 and 10, we see Jesus intentional in his instruction to his disciples. And we see that in this verse 26. He sent the man home and not into the village. And we don't know why, but this is customary behavior for Jesus. Jesus wants to define who he is. He will not allow the crowds or the Pharisees or Herod or the disciples 
define who he is. He will come and be a suffering Savior. He will reveal who he is. And that's what he does in this next passage. So what would I want you to see then in application is a few things. First, worship. Worship Jesus. Worship Jesus today. Give him glory and praise and put your hope in the final restoration. That you will be restored through Christ. That you will be glorified. That this is a, is a, is a glimpse, if you will, a, a Something to savor about Christ that you will be saved. Though not now, but you will be. Trust also in God's restorative power. Trust that Christ has brought restoration. You know, so often we look to certain things to restore our lives. Whether it's makeup, to restore our beauty... Uh, whether it's the gym to restore our muscles, whether it's medicine. We, 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 we go to so many different things to look for restoration, and we do that spiritually too. What do you look for for restoration today? Do you trust God can restore you to restore your sinful soul? That God can do a work in you? That maybe today you've come and you say, you know, I'm, you know, Pastor... Chris, you know, I respect what you're saying, but you don't know my life. You don't know what I've done. You don't understand the level of sin that I've committed in my life. You just don't get where I'm at. I, I, I'm too far gone for Jesus. Oh, friend, you are not too far gone for Jesus. The hope of restoration lies in Christ. And the Bible tells us that Christ came to restore the spiritual lives of people. To save souls that are destined to an eternal hell apart from Him. He lived the life we deserve. And He died the death we deserve. So that through Him we can have life. That we can see spiritually. That we can have a relationship with God. And it's only through faith. It's not by works. It's, it's not by cleaning yourself up. You know, getting, getting the skeletons out of the closet. But it's by trusting Christ alone. By saying, He, He is my way to salvation. He is the reason why I can have a relationship with God. And through faith and repentance, it is yours today. And so I invite you to believe in Christ, to trust in His power to restore you. Christian, maybe this morning, brother and sister, you've come, you're struggling. You're struggling in your faith. You don't know, perhaps, if you can make it. Maybe your faith is weak. Maybe it's like this blind man, it's a little fuzzy. You don't see that, you just see things kind of Kind of partially. Things are just walking around. I see trees. People who look like trees. I see God. He, he's not clear to me. I don't see God's hand at work in my life. I, I don't see it. I, I, there's so much. I just want to give up. I want to quit. I want to quit on this. Brother, sister, if that's you today, I want to invite you to pray. Pray for God's Spirit to give you sight. That's one of the gifts of the Spirit. 
And we pray to the helper who will help us see clearly who Jesus is. To, to see the promises of God. To rest in those promises. Growth in Christ takes time. Be patient. But don't hear patience to mean lethargy. Doing nothing. Now Christians grow. But we need to think about the estimation and the expectations that we have on ourselves and on one another. As a congregation, we need to think about what are our expectations for brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, do we, do we expect everyone to be perfectly holy? Is that our expectation of others? Is that our expectation perhaps of ourselves? We're to be perfect, never fail, never sin, never, no need for repentance? Oh, friends, we want to see that we are patient with our own souls. Regularly applying the means of grace. Preaching, prayer, reading of God's word, ordinances. Those are God's means of grace to grow us spiritually. Don't turn to quick fixes. But turn to Christ in the long haul. Moms, what are your expectations of your kids? Spiritual growth. What are your expectations of your husband's growth? Dads, what are your expectations of your children's spiritual life? Do you expect them to be perfect? Grandparents, what, do you, what is your expectation of your grandchildren? Are you patient with them? Praying for spiritual sight? Not expecting perfection, but seeing that it's slow over time. I just say the greatest thing that you can do for your grandchildren is plead for their salvation. Pray for them and pray for them and don't stop praying for them. God is not done saving them. He may yet redeem their lives. Patient with them. How are we in our relationships with one another? In our Sunday school classes? In our personal time with one another? Are we, are we patient with one another? Are we patient to say, you know, faith happens slowly. But do we encourage one another? Are, are we like Jesus, encouraging the faith of one another? Do we actually do other spiritual good? Get together. Have conversations about spiritual things. Encourage one another. Maybe get together and read a Christian book and just try to edify one another spiritually. Read a passage. Think about the sermon. There's so many things you can do to do others' spiritual good the way Jesus is doing it here for his disciples. And then trust that God will do it. That God will grow his people. Friends, we live in a culture that demands instant results. And I want to caution us as a congregation that we don't turn ourselves into a cultural gimmick show trying to find quick fixes to long-term problems. But we want to see that growth, spiritual growth, happens over a long period of time. We don't want to just look at snapshots. 
And so in our culture, when we, when we have Amazon you know, Prime where you can get your stuff the next day or, or you know, I mean, just think about it. I mean, Amazon started, they said, you know, we're going to get people their products quickly. Well, that was, you know, within four or five days, you know. And that was the expectation. I mean, you really think in just a short amount of time, a few years ago, four to five days for something is, is relatively quick. But now it's down to two days. And in fact, Amazon even do, does same-day delivery. If you spend enough money, I mean, it'll be there within hours. I mean, you think about that for a moment. We, when we want something, we want it now. That's why we have credit cards, right? We, if we want to buy something, we want, it, we want it now. Well, brothers and sisters, we must fight, fight against that cultural tendency to want spiritual things now. Brother, you may be called today to walk through a wilderness with God. Sister, you may be in a valley with God today. But are you persevering? Is your leaning forward or backwards? Is your faith in Christ today? Savor Christ today. That He will strengthen you. He will get you through that valley. And over that mountain. For His own glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by the power of Christ. He would save sinners like us. Father, we are just so keenly aware today of our need of a Savior. We feel in our souls the evil, the sin that lies so close. We see that we have not yet been completed in Christ. And we long for completion. We long to be healed. So we pray that you would do that work. Father, perhaps the sister or brother who's here today that's struggling in their faith. Their faith is just so fuzzy. They just cannot see you clearly. I pray that your spirit would give them clarity today. Open their eyes that they might see you. That they might, might see your promises and they might rest in those promises. Father, for those that are, that are just, just going through the difficult trial right now in their life, they, they are just being tossed so much. May they trust and cling to your promises in Christ. That, that restoration will come. That, 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 that new mercies will come. That, that tomorrow is coming. We long for that day of restoration. Long for your coming. Lord, we do pray for the fruit of gospel conversion those friends that have gathered here today, that they would hear, they would see for the first time the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this in His name. Amen.